Hello and welcome to Queen V, the life of Queen Victoria. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. If you wish to support this podcast, there will be a link provided for you in the show details and it will be very much appreciated as it goes to help support the cost of maintaining the podcast and our website. With that said, sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of Queen V, the life of of Queen Victoria. Letter 34 of Letters from England, 1846 to 1849, by Elizabeth Davis Bancroft. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Letter to W.D.B., London, April 19, 1848. Dear W., Today I have driven down to Richmond to lunch with Mrs. Drummond, who is passing Easter holidays there. On coming home I found a letter from Mr. Bancroft, from which I will make some extracts, as he has been the best source of knowledge in Paris. Then I went to Minier, who you know is politically the friend of Thiers. He pointed out to me the condition of France, and drew for me a picture of what it was and of the damage. I begin to see the difference between France and us. Here they are accustomed to be governed. We are accustomed to govern. Here power may be seized and exercised, if exercised in a satisfactory manner. With us the foundation of power, its constitutionality and the legality of its acts, are canvassed and analyzed. Here an unpopularity is made away with by a revolution, and you know how we deal with it. Thus power, if in favor, may dare anything, and if out of favor, is a little likely to be forgiven. Our fathers had to unite the thirteen states. Here they have unity enough, and run no risk but from the excess of it. My hopes are not less than they were, but all that France needs may not come at once. We were fourteen years in changing our confederation into a union. Perhaps France cannot be expected to jump at once into perfect legislation or perfect forms. Crude ideas are afloat, but as to communism it is already exploded, or will be brushed away from legislative power as soon as the National Assembly meets though the question of ameliorating the condition of the laboring class is more and more engaging the public mind. I spent an hour with Cousin, the minister of a morning. He gave me sketches of many of the leading men of these times, and I made him detail to me the scene of Louis-Philippe's abdication, which took place in a manner quite different from what I had heard in London. Cousin, by the way, says that the Duc de Nemours throughout behaved exceedingly well. Thence to the Club de la Nouvelle République, did not think much of the speaking which I heard. From the club I went to Thiers, where I found Cousin and Minier and one or two more. Some change since I met him. A leader of opposition, then a prime minister, and now left aground by the shifting tide. Everybody has given up Louis-Philippe. Everybody considers the nonsense of Louis Blanc as drawing to its close. The delegates from Paris will full half be universally acceptable. Three-fourths of the provincial delegates will be moderate Republicans. The people are not in a passion. They go quietly enough about their business of constructing new institutions. Le Drou Roland, Louis Blanc, and Flocon tried to lead the way to ill, but Lamartine, whose heroism passes belief and activity passes human power, won the victory over them, found himself on Sunday, and again yesterday, sustained by all Paris, and has not only conquered but conciliated them, and everybody is now firmly of opinion that the Republic will be established quietly. But while there are no difficulties from the disorderly but what can be easily overcome, the want of republican and political experience, combined with vanity and self-reliance and idealism, 
may throw impediments in the way of what the wisest wished, viz., two elected chambers and a president. End of letter 34. Read by Sibella Denton. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, please visit LibriVox.org. Letter 35 of Letters from England, 1846 to 1849, by Elizabeth Davis Bancroft. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Letter to W.D.B., London, May 5, 1848. My dear W., last evening, Thursday, we went to see Jenny Lind, on her first appearance this year. She was received with enthusiasm, and the Queen still more so. It was the first time the Queen had been at the opera since the birth of her child, and since the Republican spirit was abroad, and loyalty burst out in full force. Now loyalty is very novel, and pleasant to witness, to us who have never known it. London, May thirty-first, 1848. Now for my journal, which has gone lamely on since the 24th of February. The Queen's Ball was to take place on the evening on which I closed my last letter. My dress was a white crepe over white satin, with flounces of honiton lace looped up with pink tube-roses, a wreath of tube-roses and bouquet for the corsage. We had tickets sent us to go through the garden and set down at a private door, which saves waiting in the long line of carriages for your turn. The diplomatic corps arranged themselves in a line near the door at which the Queen enters the suite of rooms, which was at ten precisely. She passes through, curtsying and bowing very gracefully, until she reaches the throne in the next room, where she and the Duchess of Cambridge, the Duchess of Saxe-Weimar, and her daughters, who are here on a visit, etc., etc., sit down, while Prince Albert, the Prince of Prussia, and other sprigs of royalty stand near. The dancing soon began in front of the canopy, but the Queen herself did not dance on account of her mourning for Prince Albert's grandmother. There was another band and dancing in other rooms at the same time. After seeing several dances here, the Queen and her suite moved by the flourish of trumpets to another room, the guests forming a line as she passes, bowing and smiling. Afterwards she made a similar progress to supper, her household officers moving backwards before her, and her ladies and royal relatives and friends following. At half-past one her Majesty retired and the guests departed, such as did not have to wait two hours for their carriages. On Saturday we went at two to the Fete of Flowers at Chiswick, and at half-past seven dined at Lord Monteagle's to meet Monsieur and Mademoiselle Guizot. He has the finest head in the world, but his person is short and insignificant. On Wednesday we dined at Lady Chantry's to meet a charming party. Afterward we went to a magnificent ball at the Duke of Devonshire's with all the great world. On Friday we went to Faraday's lecture at the Royal Institution. We went in with the Duke and Duchess of Northumberland, and I sat by her during the lecture. On Saturday was the Queen's birthday drawing-room. Mr. Bancroft dined at Lord Palmerston's with all the diplomats, and I went in the evening with a small party of ladies. On coming home we drove round to see the brilliant birthday illuminations. The first piece of intelligence I heard at Lady Palmerston's was the death of the Princess Sophia, an event which is a happy release for her, for she was blind and a great sufferer. It has overturned all court festivities, of course, for the present, and puts us all in deep mourning, which is not very convenient just now, in the brilliant season, and when we all had our dress arrangements made. The Queen was to have a concert to-night, a drawing-room next Friday, and a ball on the 16th, which are all deferred. I forgot to say that I got a note from Miss Coots on Sunday, asking me to go with her the next day to see the Chinese junk, 
So at three the next day we repaired to her house. Her sisters, Miss Burdett's, and Mr. Rogers were all the party. At the junk for the first time I saw Metternich and the princess, his wife. End of letter 35. Read by Sibella Denton. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, please visit LibriVox.org. Letter 36 of Letters from England, 1846 to 1849, by Elizabeth Davis Bancroft. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Letter to W.D.B., London, June 29, 1848. My dear W., when I last left off I was going to dine at Miss Coutts's to meet the Duchess of Cambridge. The party was brilliant, including the Duke of Wellington, Lord and Lady Durow, Lady Jersey, and the beautiful Lady Clementina Villiers, her daughter, etc. When royal people arrive, everybody rises and remains standing while they stand, and if they approach you or look at you, you must perform the lowest of curtsies. The courtesy made to royalty is very like the one I was taught to make when I was a little girl at Miss Tuff's school in Plymouth. One sinks down instead of stepping back in dancing-school fashion. After dinner the Duchess was pleased to stand until the gentlemen rejoined us. Of course, we must all stand. The next day we dined at the Lord Mayor's to meet the ministers. This was a most interesting affair. We had all the peculiar ceremonies which I described to you last autumn, but in addition the party was most distinguished, and we had speeches from Lord Lansdowne, Lord Palmerston, Lord John, Lord Auckland, Sir George Grey, etc. End of letter 36. Read by Sibella Denton. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, please visit LibriVox.org. Letter 37 of Letters from England, 1846 to 1849, by Elizabeth Davis Bancroft. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Letter to W.D.B., London, July 21st, 1848. I was truly grieved that the last steamer should go to Boston without a line from me, but I was in Yorkshire, and you must forgive me. I left off with the 26th of June. The next evening was the Queen's concert, which was most charming. I sat very near the Duke of Wellington, who often spoke to me between the songs. The next day we went with Miss Coots to her bank, lunched there, and went all over the building. Then we went to the tower and the tunnel together, she never having seen either. So ignorant are the West End people of city lions. And now comes my pleasant Yorkshire excursion. We left London at half-past three, at distance of one hundred and eighty miles. This was Saturday, July 8th. At York we found Mr. Hudson ready to receive us and conduct us to a special train which took us eighteen miles on the way to Newby Park, and there we found carriages to take us four miles to our destination. We met at dinner and found our party to consist of the Duke of Richmond, Lord Lonsdale, Lord George Bentinck, Lord Ingestur, Lord John Beresford, Lady Webster, whose husband, now dead, was the son of Lady Holland, two or three agreeable talkers to fill in, and ourselves. Tuesday. Lady Webster, Mr. Bancroft, and myself went to Castle Howard, as Lord Morpeth had written to his mother that we were to be there and would lunch with her. Castle Howard is twenty-five miles the other side of York, which is itself twenty-five miles from Newby. But what is fifty miles, when one is under the wing of the railway king and can have a special engine at one's disposal? On arriving at the Castle Howard station we found Lord Carlyle's carriage with four horses and most venerable coachmen waiting to receive us. 
We enter the park almost immediately, but it is about four miles to the castle, through many gates, which we had mounted footmen open for us. Lady Carlisle received us in the most delightful manner. I was delighted to see Lord Morpeth's home and his mother, who seldom now goes to London. She was the daughter of the beautiful Duchess of Devonshire, and took me into her own dressing-room to show me her picture. On Wednesday we went into York to witness the reception of Prince Albert, to see the ruins of St. Mary's Abbey, the flower-show, to lunch with the Lord Mayor, and, above all, to attend prayers in the minister and hear a noble anthem. The cathedral was crowded with strangers, and a great many from London. The next day was the day of the great dinner, and I send you the post containing Mr. Bancroft's speech. It was warmly admired by all who heard it. At ten at night we ladies set out for York to go to the Lord Mayor's ball, where the gentlemen were to meet us from the dinner. Everybody flocked round to congratulate me upon your father's speech. Even Prince Albert, when I was led up to make my curtsy, offered me his hand, which is a great courtesy in royalty, and spoke of the great beauty and eloquence of Mr. B.'s speech. The Prince soon went away. The Lord Mayor took me down to supper, and I sat between him and the Duke of Richmond at the high table, which went across the head of the hall. Guildhall is a beautiful old room, with a fine old traceried window, and the scene, with five tables going the length of the hall and upper one across the head, was very gay and brilliant. There were a few toasts, and your father again made a little speech, short and pleasant. We did not get home till half-past three in the morning. On Friday morning, July 14th, many of the guests, the Duke of Richmond, etc., took their departure, and Mr. Hudson had to escort Prince Albert to town, but returned the same evening. The next day we all went to pay a visit to an estate of Mr. Hudson's, for which he paid five hundred thousand pounds to the Duke of Devonshire. It is nobly situated in the Yorkshire Wolds, a fine range of hills, and overlooking the valley of the Humber, which was interesting to me, as it was the river which our pilgrim fathers sailed down, and lay in the wash at its mouth, awaiting their passage to Holland. They came, our pilgrim fathers, mostly from Lincolnshire, and the region which lay below us. I thought of them, and the scene of their sufferings was more ennobled in my eyes, from their remembrance, than from the noble mansions and rich estates which feast the eye. On Monday morning we left Newby for York on our way home. It so happened that the judges were to open the court that very morning, on which occasion they always breakfast with the Lord Mayor in their scarlet robes and wigs. The Lord Mayor and Alderman are also in their furred scarlet robes, and the Lady Mayoress presents the judges with enormous bouquets of the richest flowers. We were invited to this breakfast, and I found it very entertaining. I was next the high sheriff, who was very desirous that we should stay a few hours and go to the castle and see the court opened, and listen to a case or two. The high sheriff of a county is a great character, and has a carriage and liveries as grand as the Queen's. After breakfast we bade adieu to our York friends, and set off with our big bouquets, for the distribution was extended to us, for home. End of letter 37 Read by Sibella Denton all LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, please visit LibriVox.org. Letter 38 of Letters from England, 1846 to 1849, by Elizabeth Davis Bancroft. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Letter to T.D., London, August 9, 1848. My dear brother, on Saturday we set off for Nunham, the magnificent seat of the late Archbishop of York, 
now in possession of his eldest son, Mr. Granville Harcourt. The other guests, besides ourselves, were Sir Robert and Lady Peel, Lord and Lady Villiers, Lord and Lady Norris, Lord Harry Vane, etc. We considered it a great privilege to be staying in the same house with Sir Robert Peel, and I had also the pleasure of sitting by him at dinner all the three days we were there. He was full of conversation of the best kind. Mr. Dennison and Lady Charlotte, his wife, were also of the party. She was the daughter of the Duke of Portland and sister of Lord George Bentinck, Sir Robert's great antagonist in the house. On Sunday morning we attended the pretty little church on the estate, which, with its parsonage, is a pleasing object on the grounds. The next day the whole party were taken to Blenheim, the seat of the famous Duke of Marlborough, built at the expense of the country. The grounds are exquisite, but I was most charmed by the collection of pictures. Here were the finest Van Dykes, Rubens, and Sir Joshua Reynolds, which I have ever seen. Sir Robert Peel is a great connoisseur in art, and seemed highly to enjoy them. Altogether, it was a truly delightful day, the drive of fifteen miles in open carriages, and through Oxford, being of itself a high pleasure. Yesterday we returned to London, and on Thursday we set out for Scotland. End of letter 38. Read by Sibella Denton. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, please visit LibriVox.org. Letter 39 of Letters from England, 1846 to 1849, by Elizabeth Davis Bancroft. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Letter to Mr. and Mrs. I.P.D. Edinburgh, August 16, 1848. My dear uncle and aunt, of Edinburgh I cannot say enough to express my admiration. The Castle Rock, Arthur's Seat, Salisbury Crags, and Calton Hill are all separate and fine mountains, and with the Frith of Forth, the ocean and the old picturesque town, make an assemblage of fine objects that I have seen nowhere else. Mr. Rutherford, the Lord Advocate, who is of the Ministry, had written to his friends that we were coming, and several gentlemen came by breakfast-time the next morning. Mr. Gordon, his nephew, married the daughter of Professor Wilson, and invited us to dine that day to meet the Professor, etc. We drove out after breakfast into the country to Hawthornden, formerly the residence of Drummond, the poet, and to Lord Roslin's grounds, where are the ruins of Roslin Castle, and above all of the Roslin Chapel. After lingering and admiring long, we returned to Edinburgh, just in season for dinner at Mr. Gordon's, where we found Professor Wilson, and another daughter and son, Mrs. Rutherford, wife of the Lord Advocate, and Captain Rutherford, his brother, with his wife. We had a very agreeable evening, and engaged to dine there again, quite en famille, with only the Professor, whose conversation is delightful. The next morning we went out to Craigcook, Lord Jeffrey's country seat, to see and lunch with him. He was confined to his couch. He is seventy-three or seventy-four, but looks not a minute older than fifty. He has a fine head and forehead, and most agreeable and courteous manners, rather of the old school. As he could not rise to receive me, he kissed my hand. Mrs. Jeffrey is an intelligent and agreeable woman, but has been much out of health the last year. She was Miss Wilkes of New York, you know. The house was an old castellated and fortified house, and with modern additions is a most beautiful residence. Captain Rutherford told me that when he received the Lord Advocate's letter announcing that we were coming, he went to see Lord Jeffrey to know if he would be well enough to see us, and he expressed the strongest admiration for Mr. Bancroft's work. 
This may have disposed them to receive us with the cordiality which made our visit so agreeable. Mr. Empson, his son-in-law, and the present editor of the Edinburgh Review, was staying there, and after talking two hours with Lord and Mrs. Jeffrey, we took with him a walk in the grounds, from which are delightful and commanding views of the whole environs, and never were environs so beautiful. End of letter 39. Read by Sibella Denton. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, please visit LibriVox.org. Letter 40 of Letters from England, 1846 to 1849, by Elizabeth Davis Bancroft. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Letter to W.D.B. Tarbet on Loch Lomond, August 28, 1848. Dear W., being detained here by rain this morning, I devote it to you and to my journal. The next day was Sunday, but the weather being fine, we concluded to continue our journey, and followed the Tay, seeing Burnham Wood and Dunsinane on our way up to Dunkeld, near to which is the fine seat of the Duke of Athol. We took a delightful walk in the beautiful grounds, and went on to Blair Athol to sleep. This is the chief residence of the Duke of Athol, and he has here another house and grounds, very pretty, though not as extensive as those at Dunkeld. When the innkeeper found who we were, he insisted on sending a message to the Duke, who sent down an order to us to drive up Glen Tilt and met us there himself. We entered through the park and followed up the tilt. Nothing could be more wild than this narrow winding pass which we followed for eight miles till we came to the Duke's Forest Lodge. Here were waiting for us a most picturesque group in full highland dress, the head-stalker, the head-shepherd, the kennel-keepers with their dogs in leashes, the piper, etc., etc., they told us that the duke had sent up word that we were coming, and he would soon be there himself. In a few moments he appeared, also in full highland costume, with bare knees, kilt, filibeg, etc. He told us he had then, on these mountains, fifteen thousand head of deer, and thought we might like to see a start, as it is called. The head stalker told him, however, that the wind had changed, which affects the scent, and that nothing could be done that day. The Duke tried to make us amends by making some of his people sing us Gaelic songs and show us some of the athletic Highland games. The little lodge he also went over with us, and said that the Duchess came there and lived six or seven weeks in the autumn, and that the Duke and Duchess of Buckley rented it for many years while he was a minor. If you could see the tiny little rooms, you would be astonished to find what the love of sport can do for these people who possess actual palaces. After dining again upon salmon and grouse at the pretty little inn, we took a post-chaise to go on to Tamouth, a little village adjoining Lord Breadalbane's place. We did not arrive at the inn till after eight, and found it completely full. We were sent to the schoolmasters to sleep in the smallest of little rooms, with a great clock which ticked and struck so loud that we were obliged to silence it, to the great bewilderment, I dare say, of the scholars the next day. Before we were in bed there was a knock at the door, which proved to be from Lord Breadalbane's butler, to say that he had been commissioned to inquire whenever we arrived at the inn, as his lordship had heard that we were in Scotland and wished us to make them a visit. Next morning, before we were up, came a note from Lord Breadalbane, urging us to come immediately to the castle. Tamouth Castle, though not more than fifty years old, has the air of an old feudal castle. As we were ushered up the magnificent staircase through a first a large antechamber, and then through a superb hall with lofty ceilings, glowing with armorial bearings, 
and with the most light and delicate carving on every part of the oaken panelling, then through a long gallery of heavier carving filled with fine old cabinets, into the library, it seemed to me that the whole castle was one of those magical delusions that one reads of in fairy tales. So strange did it seem to find such princely magnificence all alone amid such wild and solitary scenes. I had always the feeling that it would suddenly vanish, at some wave of an enchanterer's wand, as it must have arisen also. The library is by far the finest room I ever saw. Its windows and arches and doorways are all of a fine carved Gothic openwork as light as gossamer. One door, which he lately added, cost a thousand pounds. The door alone, not the doorway, so you can judge of the exquisite workmanship. Here Lady Brettlebane joined us, whom I had never before met. During dinner the piper in full costume was playing the pibroch in a gallery outside the window, and after he had done, a band, also in full highland dress, played some of the Italian, German, as well as Scotch music, at just an agreeable distance. I have seen nothing in England which compares in splendor with the state which is kept up here. We passed Wednesday and Thursday here most agreeably, and we rode or walked during the whole days. Lord Brettlebane, by the way, has just been appointed Lord High Chamberlain to the Queen in place of Lord Spencer. I am glad of this, because we are brought often in contact with the Lord Chamberlain, but it is very strange to me that a man who lives like a king, and through whose dominions we travelled a hundred miles from the German Ocean to the Atlantic, can be Chamberlain to any Queen. These feudal subordinations we Republicans cannot understand. We stopped at the little town of Oban. After reading our letters and getting a dinner, we went out just before sunset for a walk. We wished so much to see the ruins of Dunnelly. We passed the porter's lodge and found ourselves directly in the most picturesque grounds on the very shore of the ocean, and with the western islands lying before us. Mr. Bancroft sent in his card, which brought out instantly the key to the old castle, and in a few moments Captain MacDougall and Mr. Phipps, a brother of Lord Normanby's, joined us. They pointed out the interesting points of the landscape, the castle of Ardtornish, the scene of the Lord of the Isles, etc., in addition to the fine old ruin we came to see. We lingered till the lighthouses had begun to glow, and I was reminded very much of the scenery at Wood's Hole, which I used to enjoy so much, only that could not boast the association with poetry and feudal romance. We then went into the house, and found a charming domestic circle in full evening dress with short sleeves, so that my grey travelling cloak and straw bonnet were rather out of place. Here were Mrs. Phipps and Miss Campbell, her sister, daughters of Sir Colin Campbell, and, to my great delight, Captain MacDougall brought out the great brooch of Lorne, which his ancestor won from Bruce, and the story of which you will find in The Lord of the Isles. It fastens the Scotch plaid, and is larger than a teacup. He described to me the reverential way in which Scott took it in both hands when he showed it to him. The whole evening was pleasant, and the more so from being unexpected. One little thing which adds always to the charm of Scotch scenery is the dress of the peasantry. One never sees the real Highland costume, but every shepherd has his plaid slung over one shoulder, making the most graceful drapery. This, with the universal Glengarry bonnet, is very pretty. At Glasgow we intended to pay a visit of a day to the historian Allison, but found letters announcing Governor Davis's arrival in London with Mr. Corcoran, and immediately turned our faces homeward. We were to have passed a week on our return amidst the lakes, and I protested against going back to London without one look at least. 
So we stopped at Kendall on Saturday, took a little carriage over to Windermere and Ambleside, and passed the whole evening with the poet and Mrs. Wordsworth, at their own exquisite home on Rydal Mount. At ten o'clock we went from there to Miss Martineau, who has built the prettiest of houses in this valley near to Mrs. Arnold at Fox Howe. As we had only one day, we made an arrangement with Miss Martineau to go with us and be our guide, and set out the next day at six o'clock, and went over to Keswick to breakfast. From thence we went to Borrowdale, by the side of Derwentwater, and afterward to Ullswater, and home by the fine pass of Kirkstone. On my return I found the Duke and Duchess of Argyle had been to see us. The time of closing the dispatch-bag has come, and I must hurry over my delight at the scenery of the lakes. I could have spent a month there, much to my mind. We arrived home on Monday, and early next morning came Mr. Davis and Mr. Corcoran. They went to see the Parliament prorogued in person by the Queen. End of Letter 40 Read by Sibella Denton All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, please visit LibriVox.org. Letter forty one of Letters from England, eighteen forty six to eighteen forty nine, by Elizabeth Davis Bancroft. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Letter to Mr. and Mrs. I. P. D. London, December fourteenth, eighteen forty eight. Dear Uncle and Aunt, on Friday we dined at Mr. Tufnell's, who married last spring the daughter of Lord Rosebery, Lady Anne Primrose, a very nice person, to use the favorite English term of praise. Sir John Hobhouse was of our party, and he told us so much of Byron, who was his intimate friend, as you will remember from his life, that we stayed much longer than usual at dinner. On Tuesday we were invited to dine with Miss Coots, but were engaged to Mr. Gurney, an immensely rich Quaker banker, brother of Mrs. Fry. His daughter is married to Ernest Bunsen, the second son of our friend. We were delighted with the whole family scene, which was quite unlike anything we have seen in England. They live at Upton Park, a pretty country seat about eight miles from us, and are surrounded by their children and grandchildren. Their costume and language are strictly Quaker, which was most becoming to Mrs. Gurney's sweet, placid face. Louis Napoleon's election seems fixed, and is to me one of the most astounding things of the age. When we passed several days with him at Mr. Bates's, I would not have given two straws for his chance of a future career. Tonight Mendelssohn's Elijah is to be performed, and Jenny Lind sings. We had not been able to get tickets, which have been sold for five guineas apiece the last few days. To my great joy Miss Coots has this moment written me that she has two for our use, and asks us to take an early dinner at five with her and accompany her. End of letter 41. Read by Sibella Denton. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, please visit LibriVox.org. Letter 42 of Letters from England, 1846 to 1849, by Elizabeth Davis Bancroft. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Letter to I.P.D. London, June 8, 1849. I thank you, my dear uncle, for your pleasant letter, which contained, as usual, much that was interesting to me. And so Mr. and Mrs. Lawrence are to be our successors. Happy as we have been here, I have a great satisfaction that we are setting, rather than rising, that we have done our work instead of having it to do. Like all our pleasures, those here are earned by fatigue and effort, and I would not willingly live the last three years over again, or three years like them, though they have contained high and lasting gratifications. 
we have constantly the strongest expressions of regret at our approaching departure, and in many cases it is, I know, most genuine. My relations have been most agreeable, and particularly in that intellectual circle whose high character and culture have made their regard most precious to me. The manifestations of this kindness increase as the time approaches for our going, and we are inundated with invitations of all kinds. Young Prescott is here. I wish Prescott could have seen his reception at Lady Lovelace's the other evening, when there happened to be a collection of genius and literature. What a blessing it is sometimes, to a son, to have a father. Tomorrow we dine with Lord John Russell down at Pembroke Lodge in Richmond Park. On Monday we breakfast with Macaulay. We met him at dinner this week at Lady Waldgrave's, and he said, Would you be willing to breakfast with me some morning if I asked one or two other ladies? Willing, I said, I should be delighted beyond measure. So he sent us a note for Monday next. I depend upon seeing his bachelor establishment, his library, and mode of life. On Wednesday we go to a ball at the palace. But it is useless to go on, for every day is filled in this way, and gives you an idea of London in the season. End of letter 42. Read by Sibella Denton. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, please visit LibriVox.org. Letter 43 of Letters from England, 1846 to 1849, by Elizabeth Davis Bancroft. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Letter to IPD, London, June 22, 1849. My dear uncle, Yesterday I passed one of the most agreeable days I have had in England at Oxford, where I went with a party to see Mr. Bancroft take his degree. Nothing could have gone off better than the whole thing. Mr. Bancroft went up the day before, but Mrs. Stuart Mackenzie and her daughter, with Lady Elizabeth Waldgrave, Louisa, and myself went up yesterday morning and returned at night. We lunched at the Vice-Chancellor's, where Mr. B. made a pleasant little informal speech, and were treated with great kindness by everybody. I wish you could have seen Mr. Bancroft walking round all day with his scarlet gown and round velvet cap, such as you see in old Venetian pictures. From this time forward we shall have the pain of bidding adieu, one by one, to our friends, as they leave town not to return until we are gone. End of Letter 43 End of Letters from England, 1846 to 1849, by Elizabeth Davis Bancroft Read by Sibella Denton all LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, please visit LibriVox.org. Thank you for listening to this episode of Queen Bee, The Life of Queen Victoria. Remember, if you would like to support this podcast, you can look in the show description notes to find a link. Thank you and have a great day.